Well, good morning. Uh, thank you, everybody, for bearing with a uh, lack of AC. Uh, we've got kind of a makeshift, like, blowing wind from the back with the AC that we do have in the other room. Um, just appreciate everybody's patience uh, very, very much, and it's very good to see uh, the visitors who are able to be with us this morning, kind of the nice uh, post-COVID situation we're in. Um, with being able to see more visitors more often again, because that's a part of the joy of being in Savannah, is getting to see so many visitors from around the country. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 20, like in the scripture reading, and looking at the momentum of God's victories. Um, I'm going to be doing this sermon just a little differently. This psalm is fairly short, and so what I'd like to do, uh, psalms were originally intended to be sung, and I've split this psalm really into two sections, one through five and six through nine. Um, not that you need to change your marker, but at the end of the first section of the sermon, I'd like to sing uh, the first two verses of 359, Victory in Jesus, and then the chorus. And I'll kind of overview again doing that when we get there. 359, Victory in Jesus, we'll sing the first two verses without the chorus. After the second verse, we'll sing the chorus We'll come back to the lesson. Um, we'll look at verses 6 through 9. And then we'll sing uh, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, just the first and third verse of that, um, just to go with the, the lesson and kind of the anthems that we see in Psalm 20. This is a very special psalm to me. Um, it contains some statements that for me have been like anthems in my life. Uh, verse 7, some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Just those statements, the meaning of those statements, the truth in those statements, the context of those statements has really helped my faith through many tribulations in my own life. And I hope that, again, what can be conveyed in this lesson is we get an idea of this, the sense of momentum that the psalmist saw in God's deliverances. There's not going to be a normal PowerPoint for this lesson either. Um, this is just going to be me going by my outline with the title up here. Um, again, hopefully the uh, nature of the lesson is simple enough, though, where it's still easy to follow. The psalmists oftentimes are more spiritually minded than I think they are given credit for. A lot of times when I teach through the psalms, I feel like there's often a need to defend the psalmists. A lot of the statements they make, I think, are easy to misunderstand. I think the psalmists talk about concepts where it's easy to misunderstand the nature of what they say even within seemingly clear um, statements. Verse 2, for instance, may send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. Um, the psalmists, in speaking of godly concepts, godly places, godly things, were not unaware of the fact that so many things that were within the culture of Israel were representations of greater spiritual realities. For instance, David was not ignorant that his life was a reflection of a greater king who would later come. He's told this very plainly in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises him very directly, a descendant will come from him who will rule, not temporarily, not for a lifetime, but forever. And so David is very aware that he himself as a king is simply a reflection of someone who would come, who would be the fulfillment of God's overall plan and covenant and promises, 
We see in Psalm chapter 2, David himself is credited as writing in Psalm chapter 2, God installed his king in Zion, who is the son begotten the day of his rule, that all nations would be required to submit to this king son of God. So again, David isn't unaware of the fact that there was some greater king, some greater anointed one, who is going to rule in a much greater capacity than David ever attained in his lifetime. Psalm 16, David's not ignorant of the resurrection. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, it credits David as understanding when he said, nor shall your holy one undergo decay. That David was aware that this one that would come was not going to be doomed to death, but be raised from the dead. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus reflects on how the Messiah would not just be David's son, because how could David, in the spirit, call both God Lord and this King Lord at the same time, if this Lord was still coming? And so, again, I say all this to say, the psalmists very often understand spiritual realities of New Testament truth, oftentimes much greater than I do, because they had to wrestle with these realities much more diligently. And they had representations of those realities surrounding them. And their entire culture was saturated with these representations of these greater spiritual realities. And so Psalm 20 is a very special psalm because David, I think, is expressing things here where he is looking more to that fulfilled reality that would come from not him as king, but the greater anointed as king and the victories he would win. So it's a psalm of David, and we'll go ahead and read through the whole psalm before continuing in the lesson and looking at the text. Psalm 20, verse 1, for the choir director, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offerings acceptable. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord, may the king answer us in the day we call. So in verses 1 through 5, we're looking more at the psalmist's longing for victory. This is the first community psalm. This is the first time that the word we is used in the way it's used within the psalm. Uh, You see in verse um, 5, we will sing for joy over your victory the term we is, is began in this psalm as the community anticipating God to act or looking for God to act toward his anointed. It's the first community psalm. In connection with Psalm 21, the idea of this psalm seems to be that this is the people who are longing for God to grant victory to their king. And it could either be that David is including himself in the crowd or that it would be the people in some temporal way wishing for God's victories upon David as their king as he fights the Lord's battles and wins victories on the Lord's behalf. And of course, I think as it um, 
as it looks in its fulfilled form, that it would also be David looking forward to the victories that the anointed would win in Christ and the way that he gained his victory over Satan, over death. So we're going to unpack some of these statements as we work through it here. And that's going to be the simplicity of the lesson is we're just going to look through one through five and unpack the statements being made and find meaning in those statements and then sing uh, 359, Victory in Jesus, and then we'll continue on after that. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. You'll notice in verse 1, verse 5, and verse 7, the name of the Lord is reference. Where does that come from? In Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, there's an anchoring point for that idea of the name of the Lord. It's not just that God has, has a name, Jehovah or Lord, but God's name is a representation more of who he is, his character, expectations we can have of his promises, and how do we interact with God? What do we expect from him? Exodus chapter 34, 6 through 7, is a critical moment where God's name is defined in relation to his character. Exodus 34, verse 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses, in front of him, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness or loving kindness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting, punish, inflicting the punishment of fathers and the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So the idea is God is a God of vengeance. He won't leave the guilty unpunished, but first and foremost, God is a God of unfathomable compassion and mercy and loving kindness, storing it up for thousands, being faithful to the things that he's promised. And God reveals the glory of his character through people. Not just through events in general, but through people. And I think in this psalm, what we see in this psalm is the reason why Israel had a king. And what was the purpose not only of Israel's king, but what is Jesus' role as our king? To reveal the character of God so that we can be drawn to him, serve him, love him, understand him. Jesus in John 17 verse 3 said something that to me has been um, shocking again and again as I've come back to it. Jesus in John 17 3 says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's Jesus' summary of what all of this is all about and what eternal life is, is all about coming to know God, to understand who he is and who his son is whom he sent. And so the psalmist is wishing upon the king, on the anointed, May it be the name of God, the God of Jacob, who sets you securely on high. May God reveal his character through the way that he delivers you and grants you security. Verse 2, may he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. Psalm 2 begins this idea again of a glorified Zion, not just the city of David on earth within the city of Jerusalem, but I think again and again, you see, David understands the idea that this is a representation of something greater, that there's a place where God dwells, where salvation is fulfilled, where God draws the nations together and where God is at the center, 
dwelling among his people. It's where God is reachable, where God can be discovered, where he's understood. From this place where God dwells among his people, where there's permanence in God's relationship with his people, the people wish that from there, may God deliver from there to draw to that place. And in verse 3, may he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offerings acceptable. Meal offerings were kind of like grain offerings. It would have been like unleavened cakes, unleavened bread. Oftentimes it seems in the law, uh, grain offerings were usually not an independent offering by itself, although you could just bring a grain offering on its own. Usually a grain offering was like a complementary thing, kind of on the side of, you know, a bull, lamb, goat, these other seemingly much more major animal offerings that involved blood and pieces and detail. And yet he says, may he remember all of your meal offerings. What does that mean? And why would that be so significant? In my relationship with my wife, I've made a lot of foolish decisions. I've sinned against my wife more times than I'd like to remember. I've needed forgiveness from God and from my wife more times than I care to remember. Do I want those moments to define our relationship? Do I want her to hold on to those things and view me through those foolish decisions or those sins I've committed? Or do I long for her to remember the joy? Do I long for her to remember acts of kindness where I've tried to honor her? How do I want my wife to see me? Through what lens? And so what's wished upon the anointed is that God would remember all of the meal offerings, even these smaller, seemingly much more insignificant, forgettable parts of the offering. The psalmist is calling on God to remember each of those offerings in their detail. I don't remember sitting down and eating with my wife a year ago. All the meals that we shared, all the things that we did together. Just earlier this week, we were trying to remember things that we had done together that we enjoyed in 2020. Because for us, there were a lot of hard moments in our marriage in 2020. Those are much easier to remember that it was a very difficult year. So we were kind of reflecting on that, thinking, well, let's make an effort to try to remember in 2020 what were some more encouraging things that we did together and unfortunately, I think because, you know, in 2020 we were home so much, it's hard, it was hard to remember specifics of moments. But here's the encouragement with God. What we forget, God remembers. And the psalmist isn't just calling on God to remember the grander moments. But again, those forgettable sideline sacrifice, who cares about the grain offering? What is that? Some unleavened cakes? Remember the animal. May he remember all your meal offerings. Think about this. Do you remember the songs that we sang a month ago in our assemblies? Do you remember where your mind was a year ago when you came to an assembly, whether or not you were engaged or maybe the love you had for God at that time? Are you able to remember that in detail? God remembers when you sang a hymn to him last week. God remembers the thankfulness you had in your privacy at work, in your privacy at home, in your marriage, God remembers that quiet 
prayer of gratitude, not even whispered out loud, and it is held like a treasure in his hand. To the psalmist, no act of honor, no intention of gratitude toward God is in vain. It's not spoken into the air like burnt offerings where the smoke disappears and it's gone forever. The idea of the psalm is he's praying for permanence. That God hold these actions and hold them in permanence. And the psalmist is not seeing God's relationship with the anointed as just a stagnant, steady relationship, but something that is thriving. And that God's interactions with his anointed, that just as the title of the lesson, there is a momentum. The psalmists were not just looking to one act of deliverance in their lives and the relationship with God, but as a continual, habitual dependence on God's ongoing deliverances that were culminating to something complete where they would be redeemed and delivered more perfectly in the end. If you flip over what should just be one page, verse 6 of Psalm 23, and this is a statement in the Psalms that I've just, I've held on to this as really being an anchoring point of how the psalmist again saw these greater realities very clearly of eternity and what is the relationship with God ultimately all about. Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David was not just thankful for the deliverances happening now and viewing his relationship with God as something temporal with some ambiguous uncertainty of, well, I'm not sure what's going to happen when I die. But the psalmist understood that God was acting deliberately. He was remembering deliberately. Remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offerings acceptable. This is a thriving relationship, a living relationship. The anointed is interacting with God and God in return is acting in power. And so verse 4 and 5, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory. The name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. You remember in Matthew 7, Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. And everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, will find. Everyone who knocks, the door will be opened to him. You know, Jesus in that is giving a blank check in a sense. But there's another sense where he's clarifying the problem of why we do not see or understand how active God is is because we're asking for the wrong things, we're seeking the wrong things, we're knocking on the wrong doors. And Jesus in Matthew 6 had first said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And so the psalmist, if you look down in chapter 21, something that is very connected to Psalm 21, in verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. The psalmist is seeking the things that God is seeking. 
The psalmist is prioritizing the things that God prioritizes. The psalmist is valuing what God values. And so in this, the psalmist prays and wishes, may God grant you your heart's desire and show that God does respond, that God is living, that God does save and does have concern for the well-being of his people and the promises he makes to them. And in verse 5, he determines not just to acknowledge the victory of God's response, not just to confess that God has acted, but to sing for joy over your victory and to set up banners in his name. There is a power in recognizing God's deliverance and again, recognizing God saved me and noting that, remembering that, clinging to that and praying and expecting that God is going to respond, that God recognizes our trials and afflictions, that God isn't distant and uncaring and determining that when God acts, there is going to be joy in recognizing what he has done in his victory. So 359 in our songbooks. Let's, let's sing this before continuing in the lesson. Victory in Jesus. Again, just the idea of singing for joy over God's victory and how he's granted not only Jesus' victory, not only David' victory, but the chorus is how we've been granted victory through Christ's victory. Victory in Jesus, number 359. We're going to sing the first two verses to the victory that starts the chorus. After that, in the first verse, we're going to go back to the second verse without singing the chorus. And we'll sing the chorus after the second verse and we'll conclude and continue with the lesson. 359. I heard an old, old story How a Savior came from glory How he gave his life on Calvary To save a wretch like me I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. I heard about his healing of his cleansing power revealing how he made the lame to walk again and cause the blind to see and then i cried dear jesus come and heal my broken spirit I then obeyed his blessed commands and gained the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood he loved me ere i knew him and all my love is due him he plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood and at the end of the second section, 
not as an invitation song. There'll be a little more to the lesson um, after 397. That will be the song that we'll sing to tie in the themes to song for the second uh, part of the psalm. 397, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And for that song, we'll just sing the first and third verses. So back to Psalm 20. The second part of the psalm is an assurance of deliverance and victory. So the first part is a longing for victory. And the second part is an assurance of that victory. Let's read verses 6 through 9 again. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord, may the king answer us in the day we call. You want to think about the, the nature of the exuberance in this chapter and David's relationship with God. Um, when I was younger, uh, in my teenage years, you know, I've talked many times about the fact that I had abandoned my faith as a teenager. My parents are Christians, and when, um, when I was abandoning my faith, since my parents are Christians and their sole priority for me was my relationship with God, what was my relationship with my parents like? It was horrible. And if somebody were to wonder who my parents are through me at that time, would they have had a very good image of who they were? And so as I have repented and been able to, by the grace of God, have, re, um, have unity again with my parents spiritually, but a growing momentum of unity with my parents, our relationship is totally different. And so the role of the anointed is to display that when you strive to serve God, when you depend on him, that God will not let you down. That when you look to the anointed, what you're going to see as a window in his life is you are going to see God's love. You are going to gain assurance of his promises. You are going to have a confidence that God will deliver you and rescue you. And isn't that what we see in the song we just sang, Victory in Jesus? That when we look to Jesus, what do we learn about God? What kind of boldness does that give to approach God, to depend on God, to cling to his promises? So in verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. I think a good psalm to serve as a reference point for those statements is Psalm 18. It was a few months ago now that I'd given a sermon on Psalm 18, but the image there is David sees God ripping the heavens open when he cries to God in his distress. Fire comes out of his nostrils. He shakes the earth. He sends lightning and fire. And God descends to the earth, strikes all of David's enemies away, and grabs him with his own hand and sets him securely on a high place and then continues to empower David to fulfill his purpose as king. And so God will answer from heaven straight with the saving strength of his right hand. And the psalmist in reflecting on this understands that power in God's purpose, deliverance according to God's promises, we're engaged in a battle, a spiritual battle, and that the world is fighting over things that in the grander scheme of salvation and God's purpose, they don't have the strength to participate in the battle that God is fighting. And so although some boast in things that seem to have strength 
chariots and horses, things that seem to give victory in battle and give confidence in battle. I think about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he's reflecting to the Corinthians about how it is he's able to endure so much tribulation in his life, how it is he's able to endure so much discouragement and concern for brethren who struggle or fall away or churches. When he had the thorn in the flesh, he appealed to the Lord three times that it depart from him And God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Paul would say that he then boasts rather, not in his achievements, but rather in his weakness. Because when he is weak, then he is strong. That he may exalt the power of Christ and not his own. And so in verse 7, we will boast in the name of the Lord. Again, Jesus fulfilling the principle of who God is, how he saves, what is he trying to save us from, what kind of victory is God ultimately trying to lead us into, and what kind of victory is he strengthening strengthening us to participate in all of these things, Christ in his sacrifice and resurrection reveals the greater reality of what it is God is seeking to accomplish in delivering us and saving us. So in verse 8, they have bowed down and fallen. I think a reference to those in verse 7 who boast in chariots and horses Those who depend on themselves, those who depend on their own strength, can they sustain a working and thriving relationship with God? If somebody is going to serve God but have one hand in the world and one hand with God, is that a sustainable relationship? Is that going to work? The only way that we can succeed in serving God is, again, seeking first the kingdom valuing what God values, prioritizing what God prioritizes, putting our faith and our trust in what he will provide through his grace. This ends again in verse 9. Save, O Lord, may the king answer us in the day we call. You know, this psalm bookends, it begins and ends in similar ways that I think make a helpful point. Notice in verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the, the God of Jacob set you securely on high. And just as was mentioned earlier, it seems like this psalm is the people blessing their king, wishing for victory upon the anointed. But what God does for the king, what does that imply that he will do for the people? What God does for the king is done for the people. What God does for the king represents what he will do for the individuals among the people. And this is why the banner is set up in the name of the Lord. In verse 7, that boasting in the name of the Lord our God. Because what is done for the king is what is done for the people. And again, think about that with Jesus, his death and resurrection. Was that something that's done just for Jesus? To rescue him out of the difficulties of life and separate him to heaven and good luck everybody else? Or was Jesus' death and resurrection a representation of a victory not just for Jesus, but a victory for the people? It's because of that victory that we have assurance to sing songs like 397, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. So we'll sing verses 1 and 3 of Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, thinking about the themes in verses 6 through 9 of the victory that God provides, assurance in that victory, and how that inspires us as well to stand up and to serve God. 397, verses 1 and verse 3. 
Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead. Till every foe is vanquished, and Christ is Lord indeed. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. Ye dare not trust your own. To him the gospel armor each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. And so to conclude the lesson, I want to look at Psalm 22. So the psalmist has been expressing these extravagant assurances that God will save his anointed, that he will save him with strength. And in Psalm 22, we get an image of the anointed one suffering such catastrophic distress that in verse 1 and 2 he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night but I have no rest. And it's in this psalm that within the psalms, at least, we have some of the clearest images of Jesus crucified. You may remember when he was crucified, he quoted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, on the image of Psalm 20, setting up our banner, standing up for Jesus because of that victory, I want to read the latter part of this psalm, starting in verse 22. The more famous part of Psalm 22 is the section that very vividly relates to the crucifixion. But ironically, the lesser known section of Psalm 22 is a section that deals with the deliverance the psalmist experiences. And again, with the psalmist's understanding, David understanding that his life and experience was a reflection of something greater, pay attention to the statements that we're going to read from verse 22 and onward that far exceed anything that David ever did in his lifetime and far exceed the rule that David ever experienced within his lifetime. Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. And this is post-deliverance now. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him for help, he heard. And mind you, he's speaking of the circumstances that caused him to say, God, why have you forsaken me? I'm crying to you. You're not hearing. You're not delivering. And on reflection now, experiencing deliverance, says verse 
25. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow down before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Going back to verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. We are the fulfillment of those statements. That is, the psalmist in chapter 20 is longing for God's deliverance and the victory that would come from that deliverance that would inspire people who observe it to put their trust in the Lord and set up their banners in the name of the Lord. In Psalm 22, it reflects it's that delivered one, the one who needed that deliverance who's coming back to lead the praise that God will receive for his actions. And he's going to rule over the ends of the earth and cause all the families of the nations to worship before him and establish in verse 28 the kingdom to belong to the Lord and to establish rule over the nations. The idea is this. We aren't fighting for victory as much as we are fighting from victory. The victory that the psalmists longed for and were anticipating is the victory we look back on and gain encouragement from to serve God now. And so just like the song we sang, from victory unto victory, Jesus began the victory. And now we overcome through trusting in that victory. If you're here this morning and you have not believed in the gospel to repent of your sins and confess Jesus as Lord, to be baptized for the remission of your sins, to be adopted as God's child, you have gained no victory within the world. It's only in Christ that we find victory. Only in Christ do we find deliverance and strength. And so if you're here this morning and uh, uh, the message from God's word has convicted you, or if there's any spiritual need that needs to be brought before the congregation, please bring it forward now while we stand and sing our invitation song.